I love dogs. I love dogs, too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Sarah Andreco Show. Hey, everyone. It's Sarah. Thanks so much for joining us today. Today's topic is anesthesia for primary care veterinary technicians and nurses. And I'm really excited about my guest today, who is Heather Sidari. And Heather is a credentialed veterinary technician in anesthesia and analgesia, meaning that she's advanced academically as well as in in practice in both of those subjects. So lots of really good information that she can share with us as veterinary technicians and nurses to improve our individualized patient care when it comes to anesthesia and surgical procedures. Uh, I first met Heather at NC State University, where she is currently the intensive care unit supervisor. Um, I was working as an ER tech there, and I got to see uh, a really great side of Heather as far as her attention to detail, um, her incredible patient care. So I'm very excited to have her here with us to share some of her knowledge Uh, some of what to do, what not to do, going over checklists, routines, and really just a few different things that can help you improve your overall practice uh, with anesthesia and uh, patient care. So without further ado, I'd love to introduce you to Heather. Heather, if you don't mind, say hello and tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Um, What got you started in anesthesia uh, initially? And um, I hear that you're kind of moving in a new direction possibly. So a little bit about that as well, if you don't mind. I don't mind at all. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, So my background and how I ended up in anesthesia, I graduated uh, from Central Carolina Community College in 2006 and spent a little time in emergency medicine in a private practice. And then um, I started working the daytime shifts. And that's where my real anesthesia love came from because I was doing anesthesia um, once a week. one full week out of the month, we rotated through it. And I started loving it so much that I would steal it from other technicians that hated anesthesia. So I would say, hey, can I have your surgery week and you can have my pharmacy week? And they're like, "Um, yes, absolutely. And when I reached the limit to where I felt like knowledge base was kind of like halted, that's when I went to NC State because I knew that's where I could obtain my VTS from because that was my goal at the time was to get my VTS. And I spent you know, eight to 10 years in anesthesia at NC State, and I obtained my VTS in 2014. Uh, I've been on the credentialing committee for the VTS Academy since then. So I, and I mentor other um, techs or nurses that want to gain their VTS in anesthesia. Uh, I did want to dabble in leadership, which is actually why I ended up leaving NC State there was a position as a technician supervisor for the anesthesia and surgery department at a specialized uh, facility, a specialty facility, and it had three locations. So I had to supervise three hospitals, their surgery and anesthesia departments. And that was a lot. That was like three years of my butt getting handed to me. It was a lot, but I learned a lot about leadership and Then when the time came, I really knew that I always wanted to end up back at state, but I also have like a lot of goals that I want to pursue and emergency medicine and critical care has always been something I'm interested in. So I took my goal oriented self and said, I want to get my VTS in emergency and critical care and my leadership ability and applied for the ICU tech 
uh, ICU supervisor and I got it. And so I've been there for a few months now and I'm so happy. <laughs> I love it. I'm glad to. So that's how I ended up where I'm at now. And hopefully in the next five years, I'll apply for my VTS. I think that's like the minimum amount of time in emergency medicine that I can before I start. Yeah, that's fantastic. And congrats on that position, by the way. I know that's that's pretty exciting. And, um, and NC State is a teaching hospital. And the cool thing about developing your skills at a teaching hospital is that you can get really specialized. So, you know, you have access to very specific departments. You know, when, when I worked emergency there, the only thing we did was stabilization, intensive care. It's only intensive care patients. When it comes to anesthesia, you're only dealing with anesthesia. Whereas in like primary care practices or even smaller local veterinary emergency facilities, the technicians have to wear a multitude of different hats. So they're not specializing in radiology, but they have to do radiology and surgery, you know, part of anesthesia or assistance and stabilization and all those little things. So oftentimes, um, you know, the, the technicians and nurses, nurses in primary care versus a university type setting don't get to um, get as in-depth uh, with their knowledge and their skills, more so their hands-on skills than if they were working at a university. So that's really something special to be able to um, expand your knowledge base there and get really specified, uh, you know, because in, in private care, obviously emergency and anesthesia kind of go hand in hand quite, quite frequently because they're having to wear both of those hats. So um, kind of along those lines too, what, do, what are some, um, some, just basically some of the basics I want to look at some starting points. So one of the things that I always think about when I go into anesthesia, which is rarely these days, luckily, because I get, I get nervous with anesthesia now because I'm out of practice, but, um, I have my own checklist. I have my own routine. And if someone else sets up surgery for me, my routine is off. I've got to go back over it again. So just in thinking about some of the simple things that, um, each nurse or each technician should be going through in their brain or adding to the routine as far as a checklist goes, you know, what are some of the things that you would recommend as their starting points for that? That's um, a really good question because there's always, everyone does things a little bit differently and I get the same way. If somebody has set up for me, I am, I have to start from the beginning as well. So one of the things that I did, and I did want to let you know, MB, like, uh, in between getting my VTF and now I've actually done a lot of in hospital teaching in general practice. And so I see a lot of these issues come up and like where they're, where they can be more efficient and where they can have better patient care. And so I come with a lot of experience in that area as well, because I do go to general practices and lecture and do on the floor training. And um, when I was, you know, doing some teaching in the hospitals, one of the things that I created was a checklist. And it wasn't a, like a surgery checklist, like name your patient, name, have you given the antibiotics, you know, that kind of like checklist. It was a setup checklist so that if you had an assistant that set up for you, that everything that was on that checklist was in place. So yes, they gathered the gauze to tie in the trach tube. They put out your tape. They put out the scrub for the IV catheter. They connected your tubing. I would never let anyone but myself leak check my anesthesia machine because that's on me if something were to go wrong. Um, but they could set up the machine and I would teach them the calculations for that. And I would laminate it and it was like a checklist. Like literally everything was there. The only thing I felt that I had to do was 
they would put the tie somewhere specific. And I knew I wanted the tie right next to my laryngoscope. So the only thing I would go back and do is make sure I put my tie where I wanted it. So I knew where it was. So I was in rhythm. And once you get in rhythm with how someone else sets up, you can kind of jump into it pretty fast. Uh, but then, you know, s- someone new comes along, sets up for you, and it's completely different. So you have to go through your steps again. But if you have this checklist for what you need for all of your IV catheter um, supplies, what you need for your induction, um, what you need for um, recovery, then you are set up for success. And uh, that is just for an assistant set up for you or for you to set up for yourself. So yeah, that is something that really, really, really can save time. Um, I had an assistant at one point who was so versed in doing that. Um, she could pick out endotracheal tube sizes and she's never even performed anesthesia. She just got to know exactly what we liked and how we liked it. And she would pick out the endotracheal tube and put on there. And if she was wrong, we would switch it out. But for the most part, um, that is how I, how I utilize an assistant or how I would set up for, um, I tell you, if I didn't use my checklist to set up, I always forgot two things. And I mentioned them already, which would be my tie gauze for my tube or tape for a catheter. I cannot tell you how many times I would forget if I don't use my checklist, <laughs> but, um, you're like, ah. uh, when I did forget the tie gauze, like in the moment I would like take a huge piece of tape and like cut it, fold it in half, and then use that as a trach tie. That's, That's resourceful. Called... <laughs> yeah, Very MacGyver-like. I know. I'm like, I forgot my tie. That's fine. I will make do with what I have. But yeah, so you, some people have seen me do that. But that checklist um, is real for me, that was really important to set the team up for success, especially if you have multiple people with their hands in the pot. And I feel like um, in in deciding what your checklist should be, if you don't have one and you're not starting out with one in your practice, like, so you sit down and you're like, okay, I have to help out with surgeries X number of days per week as a primary care technician or nurse, I'm going to put together my own checklist. So I'm going to go through things step by step. I just, I recall too, um, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of Atul Gawande. He's he's like one of my favorite authors ever, but he's a a physician, a surgeon, um, I think up at uh, in Bethesda, I want to say, or somewhere up there, a women's hospital. Um, but he did a book called the checklist manifesto and it is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Do you, have you, have you read it? I haven't read the whole thing, but I have read most yeah. of it. It's, I love it because I'm very he, familiar with it as well. Yeah. He talks about how don't skip the basics because when you skip the basics, the things that you think are so mundane and so obvious, um, that's where problems go wrong and that's where you miss things. So when you're sitting down to make that checklist, like, Oh, of course the scavenger unit's on, or of course auctions is on. Of course there's enough because so-and-so checked or yesterday there was, or whatever the case may be like, no, don't skip those things, write down your checklist and go through each and every step individually, every single time. And even if you know what's going on and you can fly through it pretty quick, cause you've got it down, don't skip any of the steps. So yeah, yes. that was one of the big lessons I learned from his book anyway. And it, it, it does, it makes a huge improvement. So I can tell you one of the things when I left NC State and went to um, a private practice to run their anesthesia and surgery departments, one of the very first things that I instilled there was a, cert, a an anesthetic surgery checklist. So not just a checklist for setup, but once you got in the OR, basing off of the checklist manifesto, you do um, you have a stop moment where you talk to each other about what's been done. Do you have the right patient? Do you have the right limb? Like say it's an amputation. 
Have you given the antibiotics? Because I can't tell you how many times antibiotics can get forget forgotten if it's not talked about beforehand. And ideally those antibiotics should be on board 30 minutes prior to cutting your patient. Mm, good to know. And yeah. if it's not, you might, yeah, you might be in a, you know, playing catch up with your patient or risk surgical skin infections. So yeah, we implemented that and there's like five, there's actually like so many different checklists to talk about. So we have the setup checklist and then we have the the OR checklist. And the second part of the OR checklist was to stop right when this doctor is about to finish. And we talk about, have the samples been collected? Have they been labeled appropriately? Has the patient had this drug? Um, so that it's called a timeout. So have we done all of the things that's appropriate for that? But there's also not just that, but we also have a form called the anesthesia checklist, which is a checklist that talks about your patient. It works up your patient, which I had sent um, you a picture of that form as well. And that form has, uh, you can talk, on that form you discuss your ASA status, you discuss any core morbidities, you write down their abnormal blood work values. And so you have the picture of the whole patient in your head and let's say you need to transfer that patient to another nurse, whether it's going into um, an evening session, so a night nurse has to take over, or you need to go to lunch, so someone has to take over for you. It's all right there in front of you so that you don't have to guess what's wrong with this patient. So if you're doing a spay, is this an otherwise healthy patient? Yes, or, well, on your, anesthesia checklist, it says right here, she has a two out of six heart murmur. And um, this is the pre-medications that you, you wrote down the pre-meds that you were going to choose and you did the math pre-anesthesia. So everything's done prior to actually inducing your patient and you know all about that patient. Yeah, I, think, all I, about I don't think having too much information is ever an issue and like having all of the pieces and parts and, and thinking about like, how old is this animal? Is this a young animal? Is this an old animal? Are there any heart issues, any respiratory issues that we need to be aware of, but also, you know, kind of on the flip side to that, like how to deal with those things too. Right. Oh yes. Um, anticipated complications was something that we would put on there as something that you had to think about before you anesthetized your patient. So anticipated complications with every anesthesia procedure is um, hypothermia, hypotension, um, hypoventilation, and um, pain. Most of the time pain or discomfort is involved. And oftentimes we put bradycardia on there, but I would always write bradycardia with hypotension or with arrhythmias because we don't treat bradycardia like we used to, where we pre-med with atropine or uh, glycopyrrolate, we now treat hypotension or we treat bradycardia if they're hypotensive at the same time or having an arrhythmia with your bradycardia. Okay. So one of the things the anesthesiologist taught me, and I do it in every lecture, is the five Ps, which would be prior preparedness prevents poor performance. And if you're pre prepared for the worst to happen, one, it probably won't because you're prepared. And two, you are ready for any of those emergencies that come up. Well, the other thing that I do for every patient that I anesthetize is have an emergency drug sheet. 
whether it's an Excel spreadsheet that calculates your drugs for you, or you have a spreadsheet that before you anesthetize each patient, you calculate out those emergency drugs. So you're not second guessing how much to give them if they were to have a, um, an arrest situation in, happen. Oh yeah. Yeah. And good too. Um, and not only having that, and, and I see this a lot where there is not emergency drugs calculated on that sheet. So now you're pulling in the physician who's also, if you have a patient that he needs to get through or he or she needs to get that through that procedure quickly has to stop, help you deal with kind of what's going on. Obviously they need to remain sterile, but, um, I think it's so helpful to have those emergency drug dosages, but also to have read readily, have them readily available. So having access to those. So something to think about ahead of time, if you have a QBEC system or somewhere where they're locked up or in a locked area that you have a, if I need to use these drugs at any given point in time, I can get to them very quickly as needed. Yeah. The crash, um, the crash drugs can be really easily carried in a, like a little caddy that you can take from like your dentistry suite or to the OR suite or to your induction room. I really like the small fishing, um, like boxes, like you can put tackle in them, but they're really small. So they're very, they have a little handle and you can just take them with your patient wherever you go. Um, yeah, you should have them wherever you are. If you have to take your patient to radiology, just have them in an easy access caddy or toolbox to bring them wherever you are. So if something happens, they're right next to you. Perfect. Yeah. it's a great tip. Yes. I love them. Those are those little caddies. They're pretty inexpensive, probably like $10 on Amazon. So in talking about medications in particular, um, one of the, a couple of things that I wanted to touch base with you about uh, is appropriate timing for given medications. Now, oftentimes the physician's going to tell you when to give what and that sort of thing. But from your experience, um, when is it uh, typically appropriate timing? You mentioned giving antibiotics 30 minutes prior to cutting. So starting there, but what about things like anti-inflammatories or pain medications that um, the, the, the doctor has directed you to give? Is there a timeline as far as prior to them waking up or um, however long after their initial pre-medication is on board? What are, what's your advice on that? So it, this is still, when we're talking about non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, it is so funny how independent each surgeon is when it comes to doing that. So some surgeons prefer to make sure that they have no hypotension throughout the procedure and then give it post-op while they're waking up and their blood pressure is normalizing. And some surgeons have said, I don't believe that. I think they're going to be just fine. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and there's no proof that hypotension is going to affect you know, giving a non-steroidal, so they'll have us administer it pre-operatively. So I think that's surgeon dependent. I have done both. Um, I think the biggest thing I want to touch on with anesthesia, and I'm going to probably get on a little bit of a soapbox uh, because this is something I feel very passionately about that I think is coming into play more commonly now, but treating, pre-treating our patients with an anti-nausea medication or an anti-emetic prior to coming into the clinic. Yes. So thank we, you so much. Yeah. I love that you're going to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, this is really huge. So I don't know if you've had surgery or any of our listeners had surgery. I have had it. And I said to them, my family has a history of vomiting and getting severely nauseous, nauseous under anesthesia. I don't want to experience that. I don't want to regurgitate. I don't want to aspirate. 
and they gave me four antiemetics. Three of them were oral and the other or oral injectable. And one was a patch behind my ear and I didn't get nauseous at all. And one of the surgeons I worked with had a, a knee, a very invasive knee surgery. And she said the worst part about the surgery was the nausea. And if you look at studies, it actually shows that the nausea is the worst part about the experience of general anesthesia. And we can't, we extrapolate information from human medicine so much that how can we not think that this is something our patients don't go through? And so we, I encourage, you know, I feel that because the doctors are always looking at financial aspects of everything because of how their job goes. And so if you try to get the pet parent to give that or that anti-emetic, anti-nausea med orally, so like meropitant or serenia, oral, the pills are significantly cheaper than giving an injectable the day of surgery. So when you plan your surgery, if you can send them home with that medication and have them give it the night before, it's on board and you don't have to worry too much about it. Is it foolproof? No, but it's going to do your patient a lot of good. There's also some um, research on lowering your uh, MAC. So that has some, you know, benefit to it, but more so than just treating anti-nausea and anti-emetics uh, is pre-treating your patient's anxiety or fear prior to coming to the hospital. So there's the fear-free movement is really big on this and low stress handling is really big on this. And I don't think that you have to um, get certified in these to practice this. You, it's just common knowledge that, you know, the more adrenaline your patient has running through their system, the harder it is to get them anesthetized. So those two-year-old labs that are just out of their mind, scared and excited at the same time, I know that that thing is going to jump off the table when it wakes up. I know it. Like, be prepared for that one. I just have too much experience to know. And that is because their flight or fright response is in overdrive. And that is why we have this anesthesia like this, because we cannot get them settled once they've reached that, that peak. And so there are many drugs that we can use to help decrease this response. And uh, pre-treating with um, oral trazodone the night before, pre-treating with trazodone and gabapentin, or just gabapentin, but those two in combination are wonderful. And then giving the dose again in the morning of surgery. Um, you can give it in a little pill pocket um, which I also would love to talk to you about fasting times and when we can get to that, because that's um, still very overlooked. Um, but yes, giving it, unless it's a GI surgery where they're doing like a resection and anastomosis, where you really don't want anything in the GI tract, a pill pocket is, is fine. A little bit of peanut butter to give those pills in the morning is, is okay. And we want them to have those medications one, it's going to reduce our um, gas inhalant. It'll reduce our pre-medications or make our pre-medications work um, more smoothly than if we didn't pre-treat their anxiety, fear, or excitement. So yeah, that is something. There's a, a protocol. I believe it's out of Tufts University that was introduced to me um, a few years ago, and it's called the CHILL protocol. 
and the, they use the chill protocol. It's actually gabapentin, trazodone. Um, there's actually a couple of different variations of it, but trazodone, I think plus or minus gabapentin, but it's got melatonin in it and oh. acepromazine. Yeah. So the um, acepromazine is OTM. So actually oral transmucosal in the morning and the melatonin and trazodone is the night before and the morning of plus or minus your gabapentin. I want to point out that acepromazine is a great sedative and has a lot of benefits. However, it does not actually help their fear. So if they're fear-based, they, it um, doesn't actually make them feel better. It actually just masks their fear where they're sedated, but they're still actually anxious. So the ACE is just going to help the trazodone with the calming effect as far as like sedation, not for fear, which is where the trazodone comes in. And so if your veterinarian is still sending home acepromazine for, you know, fear, anxiety, or stress, I would recommend talking to your, your vet as a technician and saying, you know, it shows that acepromazine doesn't help, but with the, the chill protocol, it actually is quite balanced. Well, I think that has a lot to do with a combination too, because with acepromazine, one of the biggest concerns that we've seen from a behavior perspective anyway, is disinhibition. So you have a dog that is just fearful enough and isn't quite at that level where they feel like they're going to actually land a bite. And then you kind of take that disinhibition out with acepromazine. Now, all of a sudden you've got a biter on your hands too. So, um, it, I love that you mentioned that with the combination of drugs and yeah, for sure. You know, if your veterinarian is still sending home ACE, promazine is kind of what they're using to try to bring down that level of anxiety and a dog that's potentially a biter, whether that's through fear, aggression, civil aggression, any type of aggression, really having a conversation with them. Um, because in regard to behavior, most board certified veterinary behaviorists will actually have a completely free conversation and consultation with a veterinarian about um, drug usage, especially for like PVPs and things like that. Yes. I love, I love that they do that. It's so great. Yeah. Super helpful. Rely on, rely on other experts to, to build your knowledge base for sure. Yes, for sure. And the other thing that we did talk about, do you want me to jump into that fasting? Because that is something that I find has not changed very much um, in, in our field at all. Yeah, it really hasn't. I would love to touch on that and see what, also what you think in regard to the, the nausea and vomiting. Because one of the things that I've noticed too is that as far along as we've come, I do find the vomiting to be really uncomfortable for dogs. And a lot of the pre-meds that um, some primary care practices use still induce vomiting when they're given. So yeah, does fasting play a role in that? Are there recommendations as far as the way anesthesia and analgesia is moving in the direction of other drugs or do some of those anti-emetics help? Like talk to me about that a little bit. Well, the anti-emetics certainly make a huge difference in that patient, especially if you can get it the night before on board because the Serenia has a 24 hour um, uh, duration of action. Um, you can actually redose Serenia if you want to, if you feel like your patient's going to be extra nauseous. And with the chill protocol, the ACE promazine does have an antiemetic effect as well. So then that's even more bonus that you have that on board. But the Nausea and vomiting is one issue with the drugs, but the regurgitation comes along with um, your fasting time. So typical fasting time, they tell you to not feed after um, dinner the night before. 
when I would recommend, so that's like what, 12 hours sometimes, especially if, if you're like the third patient of the day, let's say that's like sometimes a 14, 16 hour fast. And studies have shown that a fasting past a certain time actually increases your chance of regurgitation under general anesthesia. So the current recommendations, other than if it's a puppy or kitten, is no longer than a six-hour fast. And I talk about, yes, yeah. So I know that if my patient is the third procedure of the day, that I will give that patient a fourth of their meal in the morning or have the owner bring the meal with them, say a surgery gets mixed around, um, have the owner bring their meal so that we can give that them in hospital so that they can have that. And that is just, um, that is another thing to add to a technician's plate to think about feeding your surgical patient third when you're just trying to get your OR turned over and your patient sedated and IV catheter placed. But it is shown to be show a significant reduction in regurgitation under general anesthesia. And so when I talk about this in lectures, I just had someone reach out to me via email and said, I attended one of your lectures and you talked about fasting times. My doctors don't want to um, do this. Can you please provide resources? And I am all about providing the resources for all the technicians and doctors because that's what it takes sometimes to get the doctors on board. And I could not ask for a better resource than AHA, which sets the standards for hospitals and patient care. And if you look at AHA's 2020 anesthesia guidelines, they actually have a chart that states fasting times for your patients. And other than emergent, which there's no fasting times for emergent, and puppies and kittens, the fasting time is six hours. And so all you have to do is just pull up your AHA guidelines and show your doctor and say, this is what the standard of care is now. So why don't we do this? And how can we implement this so that, you know, the, the third, fourth surgery of the day, they don't have increased chances of regurgitation because they haven't eaten in 16 hours. And so that you know, that's where you can find that information. There's definitely studies, but that's like the easiest one to like get a hold of that doctors are familiar with. Yeah. So decrease your fasting time. That's perfect. That's really good to know because I feel like that isn't something that has completely evolved yet as a practice, given what you've just shared with me, certainly not a six hour fasting time. I've yet to hear that in any of the local practices around here in Charlotte. So I'm really glad you brought that up. I'm going to pull those guidelines up and I'll put those in the show notes too. So any nurse or technician that's watching this can pull that up and, and discuss that with their doctor for certain. The one you want to be careful of is your mega esophagus though, because they obviously with mega esophagus, they need a little bit longer fasting time because of their comorbidity. But yeah, if you could post those, that would be great. They, um, it's this really simple chart to just hang on the wall. So, and it tells you um, yeah, absolutely. I think that would be really helpful. And, um, just to touch base too, because we're talking about anything oral really. And the majority of the recommendations that I hear are, um, you know, food after 10 PM seems to be the most common thing, but then water is completely fine. And do you feel that water at any point in time, you know, especially to support hydration, even if they have an IV catheter during surgery is still the okay for right now? Yeah, we still, um, have our patients, 
um, in a house with water. The only the time we take away the water is after we pre-med them. So say if we pre-med them IM, we take the water out. Um, if we pre-med them IV, they're not going back in their cage. So there's no reason to take the water out. But yes, we keep water available until we pre-medicate them. Okay, perfect. Um, and I do want to touch base on timing. And since we're talking about pre-medication, uh, I've, I've noticed this kind of uh, great variance as far as timing for, for pre-meds, getting pre-meds on board. I see some practices that will only do one at a time, basically, and then they'll wait it out, you know, 15, 20 minutes before placing that IV catheter and then finally inducing. And then other practices that I visit or do relief shifts with will, you know, do say one, two, three, four, five patients all at once and then get started ah. with their rotation. Yeah. Yeah. So I've seen this as well. Um, when I've done some work at some gentle, um, some general practices here, I've seen the exact same thing. Either they pre-med everything at once or, um, or one at a time. It's rarely I see one at a time, but the, the one thing that I had to really help this one practice with was they would pre-med all of their patients in the morning with butorphanol and buprenorphine in combination IM. And then um, grab each patient one at a time to put the IV catheter in. The problem with that, one, I don't like the, the mixture of it. And I don't like buprenorphine as a drug while they're under anesthesia. But by the time they get to the fourth patient to put the IV catheter in, that butorphanol is pretty much gone. And all you have left is your buprenorphine. And buprenorphine has no sedative effects. So they were doing the right, they had the right idea, right? They wanted the calm. So they gave the butorphanol. And then they wanted the longer acting analgesic, um, which is the buprenorphine. However, if you do it all at once, that TORB on the second, third, fourth patient is going to be gone. And so now you are going to be fighting that buprenorphine to get anything else to work again, unless they use dexmedetomidine. But at this clinic, they were not using it regularly. And so I was able to get the technicians to think more about each patient individually and say, you know, you pre-medded this kitty at nine o'clock. And um, his torb is gone and now he has his buprenorphine and he's not a nice kitty. And so now we need to put a catheter in and this experience for him is going to be really terrible because well, you know, your docs aren't comfortable with dexmedetomidine and now we have to hold him to put a catheter in and put a muzzle on him. And it's just a very terrifying experience in which he will remember and it won't help our anesthesia anymore. And so one, I'd like to, you know, get out to the, the DVMs and the nurses about using appropriate, the appropriate drug per patient and, um, you know, using each drug individually per patient. So a lot of times they just have standard drugs for each patient, each procedure, and it's just not how we practice anesthesia anymore. Um, we tailor them to the breed, the the uh, procedure, the temperament of the patient, the age of the patient, the comorbidities. Um, you know, if it's uh, at risk patient, like a brachycephalic, we can do some really cool things to help them with, you know, their anesthetic event. And that's something that you need to do. It's just not a one size fit, fit fits all. And so, yeah, I, this, there's so much that I can say about that, that, and it's so individualistic per patient. I don't even know how to like get into it, 
one of my tips is if you, uh, if you are in a rush to get your patient in the OR, a lot of times one of the things that we can do instead of pre-medding IV, IM and waiting 15, 20 minutes for, to get on board is to go ahead and pre-med your patient um, IV. So if you're doing hydromorphone, let's say, um, actually giving it intravenously helps decrease the chances of them actually vomiting. Oh. So, yeah. So pre-med IV. And a lot of the times the doctors are like, no, we have to save all the vessels. All the veins need to be saved. And I'm like, why? You have perfectly competent technicians that can hit a back leg and have now three other legs that they can hit. So they can absolutely pre-med IV. You're going to pre-med IV. It's going to help get them, get a catheter in faster and get them in the OR faster. So that's a tip that I use to help increase efficiency. Just go ahead and give your pre-med IV, but you also have to be familiar with the drugs to know if I'm going IV, I'm going to give less dexmedetomidine than if I give IM. So even though hydromorphone, you'll give the same IV, dexmedetomidine you would decrease. And those are where you have to like know your drugs pretty well. That's a really good tip. I don't see anyone pre-med IV. Now, mind you, I'm not in private practice very frequently anymore, but I, I never see it. I really don't. So that's really interesting. Yeah. And it helps take away that fear of being held to put the IM injection in and then you have it IV and you can put your catheter in and they don't feel it very much because they're nice and sedated. Um, the other tip I give technicians is to use like a lidocaine gel or a lidocaine cream um, called Emla cream and put it over the IV catheter site. That is something um, I've taught a few private practices to do is before you do anything, shave a little spot, put some cream on, a little vet wrap over it, let it sit for 10 minutes while you're setting up your um, induction area. And then if you don't have a pre-med on board, when you put the catheter in, they can't feel it because it's numb. So that's another tip to help decrease your anxiety and pain prior to, to anesthesia. That's a really good point to bring up. I mean, some dogs you see have an excellent pain tolerance. Other dogs, you, you touch them in the wrong way and they're so nervous about it. And oftentimes it can be just because of their state of anxiety or their state of fear per se, but just the little teeny things like that can make such a big difference in how the whole event goes and how, what the memory of that is for the pet so that the next time they come back or the next time they come back to the clinic, that can, that can have quite the bearing on how they behave or how they feel in, as a, from an emotional state you know, visiting the hospital. That's 100% true. It's, um, I just want, my goal in life is to make people think about the emotional well-being of their patients as much as the physical. And right now we're in this state of, we just need to get through the day. We need to get through our procedures. And those little things sometimes just seem overwhelming or seem just like it's going to take so much time when in actuality that three minutes it took to apply some cream to numb their leg, especially on like a little Yorkie or a Maltese that's going to scream bloody murder when you touch the skin with the catheter. It just makes those huskies. Oh gosh. Yes. <laughs> yes. You show it to them and they're like, ah! I know, they don't care. They're like, I know it's coming. Oh my gosh. Yes. Those poor things. I'm telling you, it makes a world of difference. And you know, long-term, how they feel coming is it's going to, it's going to help. Yeah. Um, and I'm so 
definitely of the camp of doing more of the individual approach and not pre-meting everyone. I'll tell you firsthand, my worst cat bite actually happened not too long ago. It was from a cat that was pre-meted, was perfectly fine prior, but did not do very well with its drugs. And I, I walked into the clinic and the first thing um, someone said to me was, oh, can you grab that cat? It's been pre-meted. We're just going to go ahead and put its catheter in. And I was like, yeah, sure. No problem. Went over to the the kennel. And of course the cat looks fairly sedate, but as soon as I opened it, it flipped out, you know, tried to spring out of the kennel and I had to push it back in. It was very traumatic for the cat. And then, yeah, it landed me one of the worst cat bites. It, it blew my entire arm up. It was horrible. I need antibiotics, but all of that because I think the cat had 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 its pre-med on board for too long. So um, good points yeah. to bring up about that individualized um, uh, approach when it comes to pre-medding and knowing kind of when your next patient is going onto the table. So, you know, when to give that next pre-med and get that on board to simmer a little bit, but not simmer too long where you lose the effects. And then you're fighting, like you said, the B-Torpenol. So you remember what it was pre-medded with? There, this is my answer. I don't. Okay. I, I don't I, because I wasn't there when they pre-medded it. I was there way after the fact I had just come in to help with a relief shift. And, um, so I don't know how long it had been pre-medded, but it was one of the hospitals that does, they pre-med multiple animals and then go through them. Yeah. One of the things that is often overlooked is, and they do this for some reason, a lot of doctors think that midazolam or a benzodiazepine is a really great pre-med. And in the feline guidelines, the practitioner guidelines and feline anesthesia, it states that it is absolutely not a pre-med you want to use on a few um, canines as well, but cats especially lose a lot of inhibition. And so you'll see that effect with them. So unless it's an appropriate patient to pre-med with a benzodiazepine, Try to stay away, especially in cats, any midazolam, because you typically can go, I am with midazolam, and they just lose their minds. And so, you know, either the Torb's gone or the midazolam's on board, and that's probably what happened. Oh, that poor kitty. Yeah, most likely. And I, I think midazolam's pretty popular still as far as uh, use in a pre-med. Yeah. I see a lot on the veterinary anesthesia nerds Facebook page. Um, you know, I pre-medded with, you know, hydro and uh, midazolam, and those labs and those cats are still jumping off the table while I'm trying to get a catheter in. And I'm like, that's because you use midazolam. It really just um, causes them to be completely dysphoric. Um, the best time to use midazolam is um, when they're little babies, a little really young or really sick and, and or really old. Like, and sometimes that even tricks you. You're like, this is such a, this is a little pediatric patient. And it's like, no, nope, it's still flying off the handles. Yeah. And so that's where the individualized medicine goes. So if I had a little neonate, if I had a little tiny baby, I would 100% pre-med with midazolam. But if I have a two-year-old lab, I'm not, or husky, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that to that bad. It's going to be terrible for them. <laughs> or to you. <laughs> I was going to say, a lot of times um, I hate when you know, the technicians are at the mercy of what they can and can't, the doctors have them do, you know, they're just doing, you know, what they can't, what they're told to do for the medication. So this is where DVM knowledge comes into play as well. It's not always up the tech, up to the technician. It really is up to the, to the doctor as well to pick the right protocol and listen to your tech. Cause a lot of times, you know, techs and nurses, they want to do this. They want to implement this and the fear from the doctor's sometimes puts up a, a wall and it makes them really nervous to do anything different. 
and, um, you know, moving a clinic away from just buprenorphine during surgery was really hard. I had to really convince them to not just use buprenorphine as a sole anesthetic agent or analgesic agent because it has no sedative effects. It doesn't have any MAP reduction. And if you want to give them extra pain medication, if it's not working, you can't because of the affinity for the receptor with buprenorphine is so high. And so we did get them to finally start using hydromorphone, which was really wonderful. Um, they just didn't like the effects because of the, um, the nausea and the panting and, uh, you know, getting them to use the antiemetics and, you know, just changing their views on, on how we can do this made a huge difference in our patient's lives and the stability during anesthesia. It is unbelievably different when you have those um, pre-med drugs on board. So the oral drugs, so your GABA, your trazodone, and then your Serenia pre-med with the appropriate drugs. It's, they sleep through the whole thing. I mean, I was watching text, you know, watching them, um, you know, just catch dogs off the tables, catch cats off the tables because they are just not sleeping well. So they don't have that multimodal analgesia and anesthesia. It's all riding on gas inhalant and um, of drugs that aren't very potent. Yeah, that and that brings up a really good point too. Um, and I've, I've seen a number of dogs just like wake up swinging and come flying off the table, same with cats, that sort of thing. And and from a behavior perspective, I always think about how traumatic that is for the animal. And and you really want to do the best you can to have them wake up slowly, wake up with ease, you know, wake up not in this state of panic, like what's going on, what's happening. I don't have, have all of my senses about me. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you about in particular too is, um, and I don't know if I'm doing this the right way or not, but I will generally start start very slowly bringing my patient um, off of anesthesia, off of gas to do the best I can to wake them up, not just turn it off and have a switch go off and reduce all of the, the, the gas inhalant per se. But what is your advice as far as kind of bringing them out of that anesthetic event with, with, do you turn down the gas? Are you more of a, of a, of the field of, we just turn it off and we oxygenate them for a little bit and kind of slowly bring them up that way. Or what's your advice on that? So if you have the proper pre-medication and analgesia on board, you don't have to titrate your gas down, but I want to make, let you know that it's not wrong to do that. Um, so depending on the situation, like if I know that I, all I have left to do is, um, let's say you're doing a dental and all you have left to do is, um, polish, I'll start turning the gas down so that that way it, you know, does start coming out of their system more so like faster at a time. Does that make sense? Like it dilutes more yeah. quickly. Right. Um, but if I forget to do it and I have a really good plan in place, I, I will definitely turn them just right off. Um, so I think it's as long when you do that and you turn them directly off and you don't have anything on board, everything's like gone, like your dexmedetomidine is gone, um, your ketamine's gone, all of these things are gone and you only have let's say your TORB gone, um, then they're going to wake up like crazy. And I think you can help by titrating down your gas. But if they're already that worked up patient prior to, I think no matter what you do, they're going to jump off the table. And that's why you have to get all of these drugs on board prior to them waking up. And if you do, um, then you're going to be, you're going to have a better recovery. 
But what I do have in place for those patients that I expect to wake up like that is I have my dexmedetomidine or my acepromazine ready to go. I don't have it on the shelf in the other room. I have it drawn up in a syringe and ready to give. If I anticipate that the, I usually have a post-op drug ready to go no matter what, but that sedative, you know, um, dexmedetomidine or acepromazine is ready to go. Um, because once they jump up off that table, I want to have it. Because even sometimes with having the best protocol in place, they can have that emergence delirium, which you can try to avoid by, you know, turning your gas down slow and having them, you know, utilize your oxygen, uh, 10 minute post oxygenation, um, you know, dilution happen. They will have that emergence delirium, even if you've done your best anesthesia. And that's why I have those ready. If they're going to jump off the table, I'm going to catch it and somebody's going to give it IV immediately. So yeah, um, you can titrate. I don't do it often, but um, there's nothing wrong with it. But there is something wrong with not letting your patient breathe oxygen post anesthesia. And you're going to get that emergence delirium more when you don't let them suck on that oxygen. <laughs> Just lost all my Raycons. <laughs> Technical difficulty. There we go. And you see it go flying across the room. Hi. <laughs> okay. So your face was amazing. <laughs> Hopefully nobody else saw it because you were talking. <laughs> Wait a minute. Um, I, I, I want to um, hone in on this point for a minute because I think this is really important. And I love keeping my patients oxygenated after surgery, but I don't see this as a common practice. Maybe if anything, it's for all of 60 seconds while you're taking the, uh, the EKG off or the blood pressure cuff off or disconnecting from IV fluids. But you mentioned 10 minutes post-op. So tell me a little bit more about oxygenating um, when you shut the inhalation, the gas off. Yeah. So five minutes is standard. And so what I do is I will do my five. A lot of times I do 10 minutes because um, even when you take your patient off of gas inhalant, even if you have exhaust or like uh, passive or active exhaust, those patients are breathing out that gas inhalant and you're breathing that in. And so the more dilution time that you have, the less that you as a technician are going to breathe in that gas. When you breathe in any isofluorine or sevoflurane, when you smell it, as you know, you're already over your dose for the day. So imagine anesthetizing five, 10 patients a day, disconnecting them after five minutes, you know you can still smell it coming out of their ET tube, right? Yes. Okay. You're overexposed. And there are so many things wrong with that, I cannot begin to tell you. We have, um, major, major health issues as veterinary technicians that I think are completely underdiagnosed. Um, so I'm going to get off my soapbox about safety for ourselves because I'm very, very big into that waste anesthetic gases. I'm very, very, very picky about that. Um, and radiation exposure. So one, if I can leave them on longer, that's less exposure to me and the people around me. And two, the less, the more dilution that um, happens, the less your patient will wake up with a rough recovery or emergence delirium. So what I do is um, I let them stay on oxygen five, 10 minutes. And the, I always leave um, their pulse ox on them. 
I actually leave everything hooked up unless they, um, I, I take ECGs off unless they have an arrhythmia. I take their blood pressure off unless they're hypotensive, but I always leave CO2 and, and a pulse ox on during recovery. Um, the SBO2, when you just, you want to keep that on and make sure they're oxygenating great on oxygen. But then I would take off my oxygen, let the patient breathe in room air and 90% of the time, your patient's going to desaturate if they've had the appropriate pre-meds. If they're not on anything, they probably are already jumping off the table. However, it's called a room air test. So they're going from 100% oxygen to 21%. A lot of times they're depending on that oxygen to saturate appropriately. So when you take them off, you don't have um, appropriate ventilation. And so they desaturate down to 95, 94, 93, and then I hook them back up to their oxygen and it goes back up. The, um, then I let them go on. I do that like two or three times until they can saturate on their own. And 99% um, of people take the pulse ox off during recovery. And it's amazing that when you actually leave it on, when you disconnect them to oxygen to see how much, how many patients actually decompensate or desaturate post-oxygenation. So I usually end up just giving them that 10 minutes because I know they're going to desaturate anyway. And when you put them in their cage post-operatively, if you have a pulse oximeter that you can keep in the cage with them, that's even better because sometimes they can re-narc so they can go back under, you know, their opioid sedation and then decompensate there. But if all you have is your pulse ox in your treatment area um, where your anesthesia machine is, um, keep it on during recovery. I promise you, you're gonna see more patients desaturate than you ever thought. It's actually really crazy how many patients need that support for longer than, than it is. So your recommendation is kind of to monitor that and to kind of um, bring them in and out of providing that additional oxygen support and then pulling them off of it until they're able to kind of saturate themselves. So maybe, like you said, yeah. kind of two or three times of that back and forth. Yeah, take them, disconnect them until until you um, see they're saturating okay off of oxygen, you have to keep them on it. Yeah. Really good point. Absolutely. Um, I, especially the overweight patients, they actually live in a state of hypox hypoxia already. And so they're probably the most dependent on that oxygen. Keep them in, like recover any obese or brachycephalic patient in sternal recumbency. Uh, so that way they have the best use of their lungs. They can expand it the most because they are the ones that will actually desaturate the worst. So yeah, keep their oxygen on, keep your SpO2 on, take your oxygen off, make sure they're saturating okay. If not, um, and they'll drop fast. It'll happen right away. It's not like you have to wait five minutes to see if they desaturate. It like drops immediately, like plummets right away. <laughs> it plummets. It's not a secret. <laughs> Well, and I love what you brought up about the brachiocephalic dogs. Like most, uh, most patients are recovered laterally. So to have them in sternal recumbency based on that square chest, you know, that kind of boxiness with your pugs, your English bulldogs, things that obviously have a harder time breathing, like really good point there that I wanted to make sure everyone hears for sure. Always. And, and they're high risk of aspiration pneumonia from regurgitation. So they're already at a high risk of, of regurgitating always recover your brachycephalics, any history of regurgitation, 
always internal recumbency, always, always, always. That way you have the most control that if something does come out, you can drop them over the table and let it go out instead of potentially going back under or going back into their esophagus. Good point. Big time. Yeah. Well, and I want, I want to talk a little bit about recovery as well, because I still, as much as they pound this into your head, when you're learning about anesthesia, I still feel that, um, most nurses and technicians don't understand that, um, and clients too, for that matter, don't understand that recovery is one of the most dangerous times of an anesthetic event. It's where you're likely to see, um, some real potential issues and some things go awry if you're not paying close attention to recovering those pets. So when it comes to recovery, so we've, we've turned off the gas, we've done our saturation, we've gone back and forth. And, um, you know, at this point, your, your endotracheal tube is probably still in, but you've disconnected everything. So, you know, what are some good common practices as far as, you know, removing the, the E-tube and um, when you feel safe enough to actually walk away from your patient and not be right there on top of them kind of monitoring everything? Yeah. So this is another part of um, anesthesia that's like an art form. So like, I feel like the whole thing is like this art that you have to like be kind of intuitive about and recovery is one of those. Because I, I can tell you, I, the two, two to three swallow rule is, you know, something someone put in place to like give someone a measurement, right? Yeah. But I've had dogs and cats swallow two times and I'm like, there's no way I'm taking this endotracheal tube out. There's no way. He yeah, is they're so- completely out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where you have to make your, um, a decision as a, a tech and as a nurse to know it's not safe. Like he might've given me a little something multiple times, but it was 10 minutes apart. And, you know, like that's a dog that you're putting at a real risk of aspirating, of regurgitating and aspirating or obstructing. Um, they can't, you know, eventually appropriately because they're obstructing, especially those brachycephalic breeds if you extubate them too um, soon. Uh, so yeah, with recovery, one of the tips I have is before you wake up any patient to take your laryngoscope and look down at the back of the throat to see if you have any regurge there. Because if there's any regurge in the back of the throat, you just wanna take some time to um, suction that out. And you can do that with many different things, but if you have a red rubber catheter and a 20 cc syringe, go ahead and you know pass the red rubber down to the esophagus and suction out all of that. Um, gastric reflux in there and get it out. And then what you want to do with the endotracheal tube still in place is to flush the esophagus with warm water and then suction that all out as well. So what can happen is um, that gastric reflux can sit in the esophagus and um, cause irritation. They'll get esophagitis. And one of the things that can happen with esophagitis is they can actually get an esophageal sphincter from the acidity of the reflux. And so, you know, a couple weeks later, the patient comes back and they're, you know, they're not eating appropriately. Like they, they want to eat, but it just keeps coming back up. A lot of times they have a stricture in their esophagus and they can't get all their food down. And that can happen from reflux sitting in the esophagus. And so, the, there can be the, one study showed in a lecture that I do, it's from like 14 to 73% of patients that go under general anesthesia have gastric regurgitation or something sitting in their esophagus. It's a really high number, which is why we want to be careful of those fasting times. And so if you can, you know, take a quick look instead of waiting until they they wake up and you can see the regurg coming out of their mouth, 
take your um, laryngoscope and just look back there, make sure it's nice and dry. Then you can just continue with your recovery. So that's one tip that I, I do recommend doing is checking the back of your patient's throat, your, um, your room air test, which we talked about. I recover most of my patients in sternal recovery. That's not like um, mandatory, but with my brachycephalics or anything that has megaesophagus or anything like that, I do recover in sternal recovery, uh, recumbency. Um, what are some other really having your sedation ready so that um, if anything were to happen, you're ready to give it. Um, and you mentioned you know, too, let me ask you about this. Um, and I think this would make some, some uh, uh, primary techs and nurses a little nervous, but you mentioned doing the esophageal wash with warm water and suctioning that out. Any tips mm -hmm. as far as that, that is concerned? Yes. Yeah, so if you go on um, NAVAS, it's N-A-V-A-S, there is an actual, and I can send you the, the website page. They actually have a YouTube video on how to do this. That's so perfect. <laughs> um, it shows you step-by-step -step how to use your Red River catheter and or suction if you want to do it, um, and you pass it down. So when you pass it down, you want to pass it down alongside the endotracheal tube. You're never going to go in the trachea unless you have a really, really, really small trach tube in. You shouldn't. And if you accidentally go into the trachea, your patient will cough or wake up. So when you slip into the esophagus, they typically, it just goes right in. If you go into the trachea or touch the trachea, they'll cough or they'll wake up. Um, so you just slide it down as far as you can, suction everything out get rid of it and then pass it again and squirt that warm water down there and suction that out. And you want to do that until the reflex is actually almost clear. You don't have to do it until it's perfectly clear because you have to weigh the, the risk benefit ratio where passing something in the esophagus could also cause esophagitis. And so you want uh, to yes. just only do it a couple of times. Yeah. And so that's what I would recommend. So NABAS, it's the North American Veterinary Anesthesia Society, I believe. Oh, I probably got that wrong. But it's the baby, it's a, so the VTS um, anesthesia uh, technicians and the diplomats of anesthesia, veterinary anesthesiologists came together and they had that baby called NAVAS. Um, <laughs> you can have, you can get a membership to it, but there's a lot of information that's free on that as well. So yeah, we'll get that out there. Perfect. Yeah, I'll definitely put those resources in the in the link. I'm going to check them out myself too. I always love learning as much as I can. So that's a really good resource. Yeah. The um, other um, we do on recovery that's um, often overlooked is we kind of forget about our patients sometimes. Yes. So yeah, and it's and I cannot like blame the the technicians. They are always in a spot that they're doing the best that they can with what they have, right? They're doing the best that they can with the tools that they're given. And so this has to be a team effort to monitor patients postoperatively, which does mean increasing staffing. And it does mean increasing um, qualified staffing to be able to watch these patients postoperatively. But the most, the most dangerous part of anesthesia usually is, re is induction and recovery. And recovery is for the first three hours post-anesthesia. It is not right when they wake up. For three hours is the most time that patients had um, uh, mortality. So we have to do better with our post-anesthesia um, recovery. 
So checking their TPRs, checking their pain level, checking, you know, the temperature is, is so critical for them to be able to heal appropriately, to be able to metabolize drugs appropriately, to be able to clot appropriately. And, um, you know, when was the last time they had pain meds? Was it at their pre-med? If so, you, I guarantee you that they're probably uncomfortable at some point. So you really have to think about redosing them, you know, while they're in your care. And I find that most technicians just, you don't have time and they don't have the hands to do what they need to do, what they want to do. And I know they want to do it. Um, yes. they just are doing it. Yeah, they want to, I know they do. So we're doing, we're doing okay, but we, we need to improve in the recovery and the doctors and practice managers have to get on board with it. Yeah. And we, we have the knowledge behind that, like how to make this patient care better. So it's not like we don't know and we're still experimenting. You can put just some of these very simple things into practice to make it such a better experience and a safer experience overall. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, imagine, you know, they don't want to come back because that post anesthetic period, they were in so much pain because you didn't have time to check on them to make sure they can get their second dose or anything orally to help with their pain med, they're not going to want to come back um, because they're going to be so painful. That's a very bad experience for that pet and they don't forget. Yeah. One of the questions I actually have on my behavior questionnaire, um, and it doesn't matter how far back the pet was, was altered, neutered, spayed, that kind of thing. But um, I always ask about their experience with um, alteration. So, you know, were there any changes in your pet after they were spayed or neutered? And, you know, one of the things that I'm looking for is how are they responding to the veterinary setting now after that experience? You know, are they afraid of the vet now? Do they still go in tail wagging and excited to take treats? So that's something that's one of the things that I look out for just from a behavior perspective. What have you found so far? It's up and down. I, I find mixed results. Um, I do see an increasing level of fear, especially in some of the hospitals that haven't quite adapted some of the fear-free practices. Um, and then also with COVID, I've seen an increase in anxiety when it comes to um, animals that are visiting the hospital. They're not able to take advantage of some of those recommendations as far as those fun visits, you know, where we have the dogs go in, they just go get yeah. weighed, they get a treat and they leave, but they go in, they say hello to the front desk girls, and then they leave. Um, so that's on the decline. And I think that might actually play into it a little bit as well. Oh man, I didn't even think about that. Happy visits, no happy visits. Yeah, exactly. Those are on severe restriction. So some of my clients, I'm like stealing their patients for the day and taking them to the hospital myself just so that they can get in there and have a positive experience. But um, I have taken a ton of your time, but if you don't mind, I would like to get into just one more topic that I think would be incredibly helpful for technicians. And I know it would be incredibly helpful for me because I'm a bit of a perfectionist, which is, I don't think goes very well with anesthesia at all. In my opinion. <laughs> I want the perfect anesthetic event and that never occurs. So um, I'm always trying to adjust on the fly, always trying to make sure that everything's okay and in balance. And that can be incredibly stressful sometimes, especially when you have an iffy patient with a bunch of comorbidities and different things that you have to take into consideration. So, um, you know, it's really not just one of those set it and forget it type of things. Like you have to be on your toes. You have to be paying attention. You really have to be utilizing your skills that you developed, not just paying attention to the machines, because sometimes the machines are a little bit off or wonky. Um, but when it comes to responding to the machine, so to speak, or your own skills, um, talk to me a little bit about when to let it ride, not to panic, not to adjust, like, you know, not bumping the gas up and down, or should you really respond to that blood pressure level? Or should you adjust the cough? Are you going to give a bolus? Like really when to kind of respond and when to just kind of let things ride for a minute and see how they go. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think what the smoothest anesthesia is going to happen when you have your multimodal anesthesia and analgesia. So getting yes. rid of that fight or fight response is going, you're going to see a significant difference in your ups and downs in your anesthetic um, experience. Now, when it comes to, let's say your bradycardia, like I talked about earlier, um, we are going to write out our bradycardia as long as your blood pressure is okay. And when I say blood pressure is okay, I mean your mean arterial, mean arterial pressure is over 60 millimeters of mercury. So below yeah. 60, you're getting no, or like no kidney perfusion, which is where you're going to get into acute kidney injury. And so, um, the very first thing that I do when I have a low blood pressure is I always just look at my cuff. I always move it to make sure it didn't slip onto the carpus. Um, I make sure that the, so, you know, the line that you actually hook up to the machine, the, the cords that hook together, that line or that, um, I don't even know what it's called. So you got the cuff itself. And then the line that comes out that connects to the cord, mm -hmm. that line should be in line with the artery. So when you hook up your blood pressure cuff to, let's say your antibrachium, you want that, um, cord to come medially. So the artery on the forelimbs runs medially. So I put that cord there. And if you're doing it on the, like above the hock, it is kind of medial and cranial. And so you just want to make sure that that blood pressure cuff cord, and it even says on the cuff what, where that um, tube comes out, it says artery on it. Cause that's what it, it does. Means. It wants, yeah. It wants to be lined up with the artery and I want the best blood pressure that I'm going to get. So I always make sure that it didn't slip that animal, you know, if you flipped them and the cuff got moved. So anytime I have a blood pressure that is, is trending low, I just adjust the cuff to make sure it's okay. And then I take into account the blood pressure. If it's still low, okay, what's my heart rate? Um, and what's my, um, uh, hydration status. Did we do a PCV total solids prior to anesthesia, which should be done prior to any anesthetic event. A lot of uh, DVMs will have it from the blood work a week prior, which doesn't accurately represent their hydration status the day of the procedure. They could be really anxious and panting a lot or had had some vomiting or had diarrhea a couple of days ago. So um, an accurate piece of total solid. So I typically will address either heart rate or hydration status first. Um, and that is just patient dependent. And I'll always start with, um, a dose of glycopyrrolate. If I want to increase the heart rate, there's nothing wrong with atropine. It's just atropine I use in emergency situations and glycopyrrolate has just a slower onset of action. So it like eases the heart into a higher heart rate. Um, or if I decide to do fluids because they're, you know, they're a little behind um, in their hydration status, I'll just start with a five mil per kg um, bolus okay. of crystalloids. And it's called like a fluid trial. So if they're going to respond even a little bit to five mils per kg, I'm going to go, okay, so they really want some more. So I'll give them, you know, another five. I'll start with 10 mils per kg um, to make sure that we, you know, are meeting their hydration, their needs. And so that's where I will start when I'm treating hypotension. I just start right there. Um, and let's see, 
I, so if I see some like second degree AV block with my patients, so that's typically a Brady arrhythmia. I also don't treat that unless they're getting hypotensive. And when I do treat that for any, like, let's say my blood pressure is trending down, I'll treat that bradycardia, that bradyarrhythmia, I'll give them an anticholinergic. Um, but typically I'll let second degree AV block ride because that's something that you're going is not untypical under general anesthesia for our veterinary patients, um, mostly dogs. Um, yeah, I'll let that ride and let's see um, if they're responding to surgical pain in the moment, I will not hesitate to give them another dose of pain management to get them through the surgery because uh, you can turn up your gas, but let's say you're, you're trending hypotensive and they're responding and they're still kind of low. Um, redose your, your hydromorphone, your methadone, whatever you use um, to get them through that surgical pain. You can bump them some ket like a bolus of ketamine to get them through, um, a little bit more dexmedetomidine if you need to, just to get them through that painful part. The tricky part is, is that sometimes when we redose intraoperatively, they can be very dysphoric postoperatively especially if we provide a local anesthetic. So let's say they're really painful during the spay, we give them another bump of hydromorphone, but then afterwards we do a, a line block and a splash block. And so they're blocked now and they've had their carprofen and, um, you know, postoperatively they're just really comfortable, but man, they are just whining and crying and screaming and barking and agitated. And that dysphoria usually comes after extubation when they are trying to be alert, but they can't because they don't know what's going on. And that typically comes from the opioids. And what we don't, oh, oh sorry. <laughs> what we, what we don't um, do more enough of in veterinary medicine is reverse our drugs. Um, you know, there'll be surgeons that does it, they do a 10 minute spay but we've blocked them and we've, you know, non-steroidal them. And now we got this dysphoric dog that's screaming in the background. And I don't know about you, but I cannot concentrate or work one for myself mentally, because I'm so just like that noise is too much for me, but also the fact that they're in crises and we don't treat that. That is so inappropriate when like, if it was a human just screaming and crying in pain, not even in pain, but just flailing, you know, the patients that come out punching and stuff, we don't let them do yeah. that. We don't let, you know, human patients do that. We know, you know, we can differentiate between if it's dysphoria or pain, right? We have to just differentiate. And if it's dysphoria by the clinic dysphoric um, signs, we can reverse our hydromorphone. Um, if it had midazolam as well, they're going to be very dysphoric. You know, if it's a 20 minute procedure and they wake up and they're like watching tennis and they're thrashing their head against the cages, give them some flumazenil. Um, when you reverse your pure mu opioid, so your hydromorphone, I recommend not doing it with naloxone for painful procedures because naloxone can take away all of the analgesia and their own personal endogenous um, endorphins. So it makes, it can make them the pain receptors that they create, you know, help themselves to, to, um, help with pain that goes away as well with naloxone. 
So if I have hydromorphone or fentanyl on board and they're very dysphoric, I'll use a very low dose of butorphanol and titrate it. And, you know, to, until they, you know, stop, you know, you know, head bopping, watching tennis or until their that vocalization calms down. And it's amazing to see how that they respond to that. And once I have doctors and technicians see the difference in their quality of recovery, they are not even afraid to do that anymore. I've had anesthesia techs. I'm like, let's, you know, they've been on a fentanyl CRI for four hours and that accumulates. And so, yeah, fentanyl only lasts 20 minutes, but if they've been on a really high dose for four plus hours, it's going to take a really long time to get off of that, you know, for that fentanyl to come off the receptors. And so I do a really low dose of butorphanol and this patient that's been not able to extubate for 45 minutes, I give them a scotia butorphanol and they're like, huh? And they're chewing and swallowing. You take out their tube and it is like a miracle. These technicians are blown away. How have I not been doing this before? You know, I'll let them ride 30 minutes, but if they're still holding that tube for 30 minutes, they're getting a little reversal. And, you know, dexmedetomidine too, like it's a very short duration of action, but some patients hold on to it. So if you're having a prolonged recovery, doing a partial reversal of your dexmedetomidine with adapamazole IM, they're going to wake right up. I promise you. And it's very underutilized in our profession. It's so underutilized. Oh, I definitely agree with that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> this has been super packed with lots of information notes during this too. So I can organize them so that, um, some of the highlights will be available in the show notes for technicians and nurses just to kind of pull out review, especially after they watch the video, they can go back with their notes and kind of compare things. And those resources that you talked about, I'm going to put here available. Um, I am um, curious too, and not only about some of the sites that you would recommend if people want to learn more or get a better in-depth knowledge about anesthesia, where your favorite sites are to go for some of that continuing education and learning, um, if you have any favorite speakers, and if you're doing any upcoming continuing education. Oh man, I have so, I have so so I go to so many CEs and I speak at a lot of CEs. Um, what month is this? This is uh, November. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think what's coming up. Um, I love going to the veterinary anesthesia nerds talk. So like when Tasha McNerney talks, I love, love, love listening to her. Um, Darcy Palmer, she does a recovery podcast on um, the Clinician's Brief podcast. It's one of my favorite podcast um, episodes. I love the Clinician's Brief podcast, but the, that episode was so like validating for me to have this amazing like VTS and anesthesia that is like a God in our world speak about this recovery that I do, I've been doing lectures on and I just felt so validated. And um, so that podcast, I can send you the link to that as well. So Darcy Palmer, Tasha McNearney, Kristen Messenger, she does this amazing lecture on the new Grimace scale. So the feline pain scale that's just coming out. Love Kristen Messenger. Um, yeah, I used to work with her dad a long, uh, a long time ago. He was actually the first one in anesthetic events that is, that would do lidocaine blocks on the, on the surgical site. And, um, he, everybody would make like the other physicians would make fun of him for it basically. And he would always look at him and be like, have you ever had abdominal surgery? Okay. Then 
No way. Because if you work with him, he's so awesome too. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. Duncan LaSalle's, uh, um, you know, NC State, um, he is like the pain guru. So, you know, any lectures that he he does anesthetically. But I also love listening to um, some like fear-free lectures, like low-stress handling lectures and um, uh, Kara Burns is probably one of my favorite. Like she's, she's just like really good at it. Like she's so engaging. I just love watching her lecture. She's just really good at it. Not that I have like significant in like love for nutrition, but um, she's just so good at lecturing. Um, that's an, actually another thing that we'll maybe we'll need to catch up on is post-op eating. That's something that we don't, um, nutrition is healing and getting them eaten, eating right afterwards. That's a whole nother subject that I recommend you guys look up. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah, those are my favorite. Um, I just did, um, I just did NCBC, which is our North Carolina conference, which is still, um, it's virtual through the end of December. And I did that show, which is now virtual. Um, I'm supposed to do the, um, Western conference, but I'm not sure if that's going to be virtual or in person at this point. Um, for now it's, we're going to say it's virtual. Um, but those are, yeah, those are the conferences that I just did and that are coming up, but yeah, and those are my favorite speakers. They're really fantastic. If you um, uh, listen to Clinician's Brief podcast, Becky Mosser, I don't know if you know her, she's done a lot for our profession, but she's a really great lecturer as well. And she does a lot of talk about self-care. And I think that's very um, underutilized as well, you know, taking care of yourself and you know, tech, technician utilization. And, um, I don't know, there, there's so many great people out there. I don't even know. I can name a hundred of them. That's really helpful. I'm going to, I will list those out and, um, dive into those myself too. So that's, that's helpful. I'll put all of those resources in the show notes so people can directly click on the links and go right to the podcast to get, to get into those, to dive oh, into those. Great. That would be so great. They, they'll love it. It's so good. Perfect. Um, so if anyone wants to get a hold of you, do you have any social handles or any way to contact you directly if they have questions? Um, of course, if you want to keep an eye on um, the comment section for this video, because if I can't answer it, I won't answer it. I'll go to someone else. But if you want to chime in at any given point in time and answer questions, I'm having something with these breakdowns today. I'll tell you what, they're too big for my ears. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so keep an eye on those, but is there any yeah. uh, information you want to give, uh, to people out there that might want to reach out to you and ask you about upcoming stuff? Yeah, I actually give my email out directly because, um, after every lecture, people will ask me for my slides or ask me like questions about anesthesia. Again, just freely ask me. I really feel like my purpose on this planet is to, to make our patients' lives better. And so, I'm not one of those ones who will post, um, you owe me money for helping you with your pet. I actually please come to me with any questions you have about your pet because I'm going to steer you in the right direction. I promise you. And that's what I want to do. So it's actually, if you can just, you know, put it up there so they spell my last name correctly, but it's heather.sidari at gmail.com. Super easy, super easy to remember. And you can email that is me. That's really anytime. helpful. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for that. That is fantastic. Just go right to the source, ask your yeah. questions. Yeah, absolutely. We share that passion, that education passion. It's great. Yes. Now you oh, are right. here and train my dogs. 
Yes. <laughs> that I can help you with. Anything <laughs> behavior related, I got it. Anesthesia afterwards, I need a, a, a tall, heavy drink after a full day of anesthesia. <laughs> I love it. It's my favorite. <laughs> we need more brave souls like you on the planet willing to dive deep and learn even more and then share your knowledge with the rest of us. <laughs> I can't wait. And I hope that the checklist like um, help them. Um, you can show, you know, share that with them. And if they want the Excel sheet for like to quick and easy, put in the Excel drugs, like they can have that as well. I just want them to have all the resources to, to provide the best patient care. So anything that your viewers need, I'd be happy to provide it. Thanks so much. This has been incredibly helpful. And I think everybody that, that listens in on this will, will definitely agree. All right, Heather Sidari, thank you so much for being on our little YouTube continuing education show. And if you have any questions, drop them in the comments below. Don't forget to please hit the like button if you enjoyed this video to let us know and hit subscribe and ring the bell to receive notifications when more content like this is released. Awesome. Thanks so much, Heather. Thank you.